is an Around the A off-season update with David Foote and Patrick Williams on the Sports Podcasting Network. It's a big day here on Around the A on the Sports Podcasting Network. Perhaps our biggest guest ever outside of, well, maybe the commissioners and the presidents and CEOs of the American Hockey League that we've had on in the past. But big guest coming up, uh, Brian Burke, the uh, longtime general manager, player agent, and former player, will be with us later on to talk a little bit about his new book, Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey, and uh, as well to give us some of his prognostications on how he thinks uh, things might shake down as far as a season goes moving forward for the American Hockey League and, of course, the NHL. Uh, it's an exciting show that we've got on the way, Pat. Really looking forward to getting to uh, pick the brain of a guy like Brian Burke for a little bit. Yeah, I guess like Brian Burke, it doesn't get any bigger than that. I mean, uh, you mentioned we've had Dave Andrews, Scott Helson, a big, big guest, Mike Gamrick. Uh, and then I think, frankly, you know, we've had a lot of people from individual teams and like coaches and, and media. Uh, Brian Burke, though, has, has worked at the the pinnacle, really, of, of the sport. When you're the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, um, right off the bat, I mean, that's one of the highest profile uh, jobs in this business. Um, and certainly uh, he's been a GM for, for a Stanley Cup uh, winning club like the Anaheim Ducks back in 2007, uh, Calgary Flames, Vancouver Canucks, Hartford Whalers. That's how, uh, how far back he goes. And then interestingly, I, th- I think uh, is the fact he's worked as a player agent back in the 1980s when it was really starting to, to become a much bigger part of the game. Uh, so he's seen it from the other side uh, of the of, uh, the desk, if you will. And then he's been a player. Uh, he's uh, a player for Lou Lamorello at P- Providence college. And then uh, played a year in the AHL, the 1970s uh, as a Philadelphia Flyers prospect. So uh, certainly somebody who uh, has seen the game uh, from many different angles has been there for the evolution from the 1970s game and uh, all the way up till today working for Sportsnet. So uh, we're really happy to have him uh, when, when he agreed to come on uh you know, uh, it was a big, it was a big acquisition for our show. Uh, and I think the fans will really enjoy it, uh, hearing, uh, all his thoughts and we go pretty in depth on the HL. Uh, he's worked very closely with the league for a long time. Those this league inside out as well as the NHL. So, um, you know, have a lot of insight for our fans and listeners. And we're not going to make the listeners wait too long to get to Brian Burke, but we do have a couple of things to talk about. Um, While the headlines have been quiet in the AHL and the NHL as they try to work together with the players to figure out how to get an upcoming season off and running, there has been some news out of the ECHL, uh, the third tier, if you will, of the North American professional hockey. And uh, they've decided that their North division is not going to play this year, Pat. Uh, which, uh, you know, despite the fact that we're not an ECHL show, is going to have some ripple effects across the American Hockey League. Absolutely. Uh, six clubs, uh, in addition to the two clubs earlier, uh, the uh, Atlantic Gladiators, uh, who are the ECHL affiliate of the Boston Bruins, and then the Norfolk Admirals, um, the longtime AHL uh, team themselves, uh, who are independent in the ECHL, also sitting out this season. And that's what we know for now. There's still some other clubs that are a little bit more in, up in the air as well. Um, but there, yeah, there's a huge, uh, huge spinoff effect uh, for sure. Uh, when you think about, um, you know, there, there are players that come back and forth all the time, uh, especially those East Coast, like East Coast as in location mm-hmm. clubs. Uh, you have uh, you Adirondack uh, who are with the New Jersey Devils. Well, them in Bainhamton, uh they send players back and forth all the time. Brampton and Belleville, another example. 
uh, Reading, Lehigh Valley, Worcester and Bridgeport, uh, Maine and Hartford, uh, uh, the Toronto Marlies, and the Growlers up in St. John's. Uh, you know, the, uh, really, I think the Toronto Maple Leafs are, are one of the real uh, front runners in terms of uh, establishing that three-tier development system, the NHL, the AHL, the ECHL. It's become, a, a, at least before the pandemic, uh, a much more popular model for player development. Uh, it's a chance to get uh, maybe some of those uh, more diamond in the rough type players, the uh, guys that are a little bit more uh, question marks and, and simply need a lot of playing time, a lot of development and skill time. Um, I think of a player like Mason Marchment uh, with the Leafs uh, mm-hmm. started off uh, in the ECHL with Orlando and that was their affiliates and, um, they put a lot of time, a lot of effort into developing him and he became a pretty good player at the American League level eventually. And I was right uh, knocking on the door now. He's since moved on to the Florida Panthers. Uh, has a good chance, I think, at some point to break into the NHL full time. And A real success story, a, a real example of uh, what that three-tier model can do. So now when you, you take those six clubs out, plus the two other clubs, uh, Atlanta and Norfolk that I mentioned earlier, um, all of a sudden now, that, that's 160 fewer jobs that are available uh, at that level. Uh, it's it just it's, it's that much uh, more difficult if you're an AHL club and you do play this season to send a player down to get some playing time. So that means you have more guys hanging around. Um, now, maybe that will be useful uh, if the coronavirus is still circulating at some point and uh, you start to have players uh, you know uh, test positive uh, like we've seen in the NFL and Major League Baseball um, if you're not in that bubble situation it's really difficult to to keep players healthy uh, despite your best in, in intentions and best efforts mm-hmm. so maybe that's a factor uh, as well uh, but um, it's it's difficult right now and, and you look at those clubs ECHL teams uh, they do a lot of the the uh, the real grinding work of, of building hockey's popularity, especially in the States uh, and some of the, uh, you know, quote unquote, non-traditional markets uh, like down South, especially. Um, and uh, they, they run on a pretty thin margin in the best of times. And now you're sitting out for an entire season. Uh, it's just very difficult. Um, ECHL people, I've said this before. I mean, uh, you're not in, you're not in that business to get rich uh, mm-hmm. you're in that because you love hockey. Uh, first and foremost, and uh, a lot of people that uh, have worked their way up, especially coaches, you think of the coaches that have come through the ECHL, like Peter Laviolette got his start down there. Um, a lot of guys that, that willing to grind and you, you kind of wear a lot of different hat, hats in that role uh, at that level. Uh, but it's a great way to uh, build a name for yourself and, and work your way up, eventually get to the American League. And then if all goes well to the NHL. Uh, so um, it's a it's a huge piece of the puzzle that's going to, going to be missing to some extent this season, um, and uh, like you said, the ripple effects, the spinoff effects, uh, I think could be fairly considerable. So some of the big headlines out of the ECHL this week. Things still quiet on the AHL NHL front for now. Of course, if anything does break, we will make sure to break in with a new episode so you don't miss the latest news. From around the league, why don't we get to our guests then, Pat? Uh, we don't want to keep the people waiting for uh, a name like this. Uh, Brian Burke has been around the game for decades, and he's got a reputation of being a little bit gruff, maybe a little bit brash, perhaps a little bit scary and intimidating, uh, depending on 
you know, where you fall in, in the spectrum of, of hockey folks that deal with him. And uh, I'd have to be honest, I, I was a little uh, apprehensive heading into the interview that, that maybe that's my, what we might be in for a little bit of that type of personality, but I uh, pleasantly surprised with, uh, with his candor. Of course, we did this interview a little bit earlier on uh, in the week to fit his naturally busy schedule, but uh, boy, it was a whole lot of fun to chat with him. And uh, we learned a lot and heard a lot of good stories. Yeah, Brian Burke, uh, yeah, certainly has that that uh, reputation for being gruff. And, and I think he can be gruff. I think if you if you get on his bad side, um, he can be your worst nightmare, uh, especially in the media. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are stories that uh, players who've, who've run afoul of him uh, have not uh, had a pleasant experience. Mm. Uh, but I think uh, he's a straight shooter. And uh, let's be honest, I don't think we always get that in hockey. I think uh, there's a tendency to sort of... Mm, say nothing uh and it's it's the easiest way to to sort of skate through and uh not cause any ripples and uh but you're you know if you're a brian burke you've you've established yourself enough that you can get away with uh, being honest and i think there's nothing wrong with honesty as long as you're fair and uh i think that's the approach he took with his new book burke's law life and hockey um you know he said that um he tried to walk that line between uh spelling it out how it is or at least how he saw it uh, versus not deliberately just trying to take runs and pot shots at people so uh, that's a fine line uh, there's um, despite hockey's sort of uh, very bland I, I guess is the right word uh, uh, hockey speak at times I think you know, behind the scenes, uh, hockey people are extremely opinionated. I think Brian Burke um, kind of pulls back the curtain on that a little bit and, and gives fans and media a real sense of uh, what really goes on. And I uh, I read his book cover to cover in, in about a night and a half. It was that good. And, um, you know, I think um, he brought that same intensity, that same energy to our interview with him as well. Yeah, he talks a little bit about being a student at Providence College, his brief time in the American Hockey League, and then uh, some stories from beyond that when he moved into being an agent and uh, general manager and uh, now an analyst with Sportsnet. We'll talk to him about all that, plus what he expects from uh, the upcoming season whenever it begins. Brian Burke joins us next on Around the A on the Sports Podcasting Network. You've been obviously around the game a long time. Uh, you've done a lot of different things in, in your career. Uh, why did you decide now was the right time to, to publish a book and to tell some of your stories? Well, first off, I'm really offended. When you introduced me, you didn't mention former AHL alumnus well, <laughs> and Calder Cup winner. We were going to get to that. <laughs> okay. Um, I was approached by Stephen Brunn about doing a book right after we won the Cup in Anaheim in 2007. And I told him at the time I felt I had too much hockey in front of me and it would have to wait. But uh, in February of 2018, Ken King, the late, great Ken King, my boss, came to me and said, we're making a change at the end of the year. And that's the deal we made when I went to Calgary, was once they felt that whoever I brought in as GM was was capable of running it without my guidance, that they would let me go. So no surprise, it wasn't unfair. Uh, but I had some free time that spring, so I started doing an outline on the book. This in my early life, when I started playing hockey, and turned into a hundred-page outline. And then I went to Stephen Brunt and hired him to actually write the book, and he did a great job. 
Yeah, and obviously you get into uh, you know all aspects of your career, including that uh, that Calder Cup win that uh, I know, uh, reading part of it, that you were sadly left out of, I suppose, due to the, the circumstances and the type of series that was going to be. Um, what was the AHL like uh, you know, during your time playing in the league? Well, I loved playing in the American Hockey League. I never thought I'd get a chance to. I didn't start playing hockey till very late in my youth, and uh, I never dreamed I'd get to play pro hockey. And when I got to play seven games in Springfield in the spring of uh, 1977 and then play on a Calder Cup championship team in Portland, Maine, 77-78, I loved it. I loved the guys. I loved the free time. I, I think I read more books that year than I read in the next ten. Because I remember one road trip, I brought eight books, and I finished the eighth book right as we pulled into the arena. And I was thinking, geez, I'm going to have to go buy another book. Um, so I loved it. I loved the guys. Uh, Bob McCann was our coach, uh, good guy. We had a championship team, which was fun. city of Portland was great. So I loved it. I hated going back to school. You mentioned that when you left Providence College, you, you, you went directly to the Springfield Indians first. Uh, and you mentioned at that time uh, – the commitment level of some of the players on that club uh, wasn't really what it should be. Um, p- player mentality has changed quite a bit since then. What was that atmosphere like walking in there uh, off the campus of Providence College? Well, so I played at Providence. I played for Lou Lamorello, played four years, played with Ronnie Wilson, uh, graduated as a co-captain and with the record for games played, uh, and a very serious student and a very serious athlete. So when I turned pro, I expected the same. And it was funny uh, because at that point, when I turned pro with the Springfield Indians, half the team was Washington Capitals prospects and half was Philly. And the Washington Capitals prospects uh, weren't, it was very different. They weren't as serious as the the Flyers prospects were. It was a bit of slap shot, like you said, but it's a different era too. So the two stories I tell in the book, the first period of my first game, we played, I think it was Providence Reds. Seven guys lit cigarettes in the dressing room in their stalls after the first period. <laughs> the, co- the coach, I swear to God, Dennis Falafi, who I lockered beside him, he sat right beside me. He lit a cigarette after the first period. He had 99 points that year, I think. He was a great player, great guy. But that was accepted back then. You, you, the coach is talking to us about what we have to do, and guys are smoking cigarettes in their stalls, seven guys. And the first road trip we took, we went to uh, Hershey. We were playing in Hershey. And the trainer came to me and said, how much beer do you want for the bus? So I'm a rookie, right? So I said, I don't know, how much does everyone else get? And they said, he said, two six-packs. So I gave him the money for two six-packs of beer, which I think was two bucks back then, and uh, maybe even less. And anyway, so we get on the bus, and each guy had bought two six-packs, but the team put four flats of beer on, four full cases uh, for the team, too. So they had this pile of beer in the center of the bus and bags of ice on top of it to keep it cold. You had to walk on the seat handles to get over the pile of beer to get back to your seat. So, yeah, it was very different then. What was uh, what was life like uh, on and off the ice uh, with Springfield and Portland uh, back then? Well, we didn't have a gym in the rink in Portland, so uh, – Norm Barnes and I, Norm was a, played, I think, at Michigan State, and one of the strongest mm-hmm. guys they ever played with. They got us free memberships at a health club, and they had a beautiful health club in uh, downtown Portland. And Norm and I would go lift every day after practice. And, um, 
he had he was married and had a baby that year, so he missed the odd day. But we went a lot. Mike Corny would play with me early in the year. He got traded early. We would all go after practice and lift weights, and so there was a serious, very serious side of it. And our team was excellent. Like we were, we were a great team. Obviously, we won the title, but um, life was good. Like Portland is a beautiful city now. Back then, it was not so nice. It was kind of just starting to. There's a lot of old buildings there. They were just trying to refurbish them and get some restaurants open, and it's beautiful now. Back then, it was about maybe a quarter of the way there, but the fans were fantastic. Um, the thing about playing pro hockey is you have so much free time. That That's the best part about it. So my roommate and I, Tommy Gorence was my roommate. We lived right across the highway from the practice rink, so we would, I would walk to practice. He would drive. He didn't like walking through the woods. And... Um, but it was great. I loved pro hockey. I loved the lifestyle. I loved the guys. Uh, I loved the free time. And uh, it was fantastic. Today you often hear players, uh, with regard to their coaches, they like to ask the question why a lot. They want something explained to them. Um, with your coach there, Bob McCammon, uh, uh, what was different then in terms of how players and coaches uh, related to each other? Well, back then, and they're going through the same shift in the military in the United States. Back then you never questioned the coach, right? Like Keith Allen was our GM. I called him Mr. Allen. My players call me Berkey. You would never call, you never say, Hey Keith, it was Mr. Allen. Mm. And, um, Freddie Shiro was the coach of the flyers. It was coach Shiro. You, know, you didn't call him Freddie. The players did that played there, but I, I would never have done that. I think the difference with the players now is back then, Bob McCammon would say, do this and if you didn't do it you would sit and now i think you have to explain more to the coaches and, and again they're going through the same transition in the military world war ii the colonel points up the hill and says take that hill everyone charges up the hill now you have to explain why the hill is important how many soldiers will be involved in the mission what the potential loss of life is and so on it's not all a bad thing but i think you have to explain more to this generation of players why you're doing it you can't be as hard on the players as you used to be. Uh, you know, like in the old days, keep in mind, long before I played, in the old six-team NHL, it wasn't uncommon to get sent down by, they would pin a train ticket to your pants. So you would come off the ice from practice, and there would be a train ticket pinned to your dress pants. And that's how they told you you were going down. So we've evolved since then. Um, and now the new evolution is you have to explain things more to these players and, and make it make sense to them. And that's not all bad. We're chatting with Brian Burke about his new book, Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey. Um, you uh, were obviously a prospect with the, the Philadelphia Flyers. And, uh, you know, at that time and even now today, I suppose the Flyers have a certain way of doing business, so to speak. Um, how did things in Philly and the way they operate influence your career? Well, we were on the tail end of the Broad Street Bullies. Now, keep in mind, a lot of people get this wrong historically. The, 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 everyone blames the Flyers for the fighting era in the NHL. It really started with St. Louis. Mm. And the Flyers played St. Louis in the playoffs and got badly pushed around. And Mr. Snyder, the late, great Ed Snyder, and Keith Allen, the late, great Keith Allen, uh, vowed that would never happen again. And that's when Philly went out and got tough. So we were on the tail end of that. Uh, and we were a really tough team, and we fought a lot. I think we emptied the bench maybe six times that year, including once in the conference finals. And in, the, in the Calder Cup conference finals, we had a bench-clearing brawl in Halifax. So 
So uh, we are a real tough team. We fought a lot. It was part of our DNA, and certainly, you know, lived on with me. It was part of my team's DNA as well. Uh, in the book, you uh, describe a pretty honest discussion with a young Brett Hull when he was a Calgary Flames prospect playing in the AHL, and pretty much told him uh, that he literally needed to get in shape. Uh, in in your days as an agent and, and a general manager. Did you have to have similar discussions with other young prospects, and um, how have those discussions maybe changed over the years? Well, I think the athletes have changed. Like when I played, you used training camp to get in shape. I remember Moose Dupont when I was in training camp with the Flyers, uh, riding the bike with a garbage bag on to try and make weight, try and lose some weight. Uh, back then, the veterans used training camp to get ready for, for the season. Training camp was about a month long, three and a half weeks, and that's how, when they got in shape. Now, these kids never really get out of shape. Like mm. the testing results that we have with NHL teams, you've got three or four guys, maybe half a dozen guys who aren't where you want them to be in terms of VO2 max or different testing results, but they're still in better shape than 80% of the population, 90% of the population. So the training aspect of it, these guys do a great job of that, way better than we did. And they're better players. Like these kids we get out of junior and college, they can do things that third- and fourth-year pros couldn't do back then. Mm-hmm. When, when you look back uh, that that one year in Portland, uh, it seemed like you really struggled with that decision to whether or not to go to law school or to, to stay in hockey. Can you recount that, that discussion you had uh, with Keith Allen uh, and the honesty that he, he delivered to you that maybe at the time you didn't necessarily want to hear but long-term proved to be very good for you? Yeah, so – for people who haven't read the book or aren't familiar with the story. So when I was a senior at Providence, I was accepted at Harvard Law School, mainly because Lou Lamarello made me take the LSAT, the Law School Admissions Test. And I got in, got accepted at Harvard and deferred for a year because I hoped I'd be able to play pro hockey. So now it's the end of the year. We won a Calder Cup. I did not play that much in Maine. I did not play that well in Maine. Um, I think any if you two had watched me play, you'd say, kid go to law school but i didn't know that right <laughs> I, I didn't start playing hockey until i was 13 i had come so far and worked so hard i was really reluctant to let that go so when i signed with the flyers i signed a one plus one one year plus an option year so i could i could have played another year i could have gone back and played and that's what i was uh intent on doing and then i started thinking about it. i was driving in western canada i went on a road trip to, to see two of my two mates, teammates get married drew calendar and al hill and in between, I went to Alaska, and I started thinking, you know, the, the, the turning point for me was in March, we had, I was a right wing. We had two wingers get injured. So uh, John Paddock got hurt, and Larry Romanchuk got hurt, I think. And I thought my ice time was going to go up, and it didn't. They moved people over from the left side. And I should have seen right there that, you know, okay, this is not good. And I did see it, but driving through Western Canada, I'm like, I had gone down and met with the Dean of Admissions at Harvard Law School and said, can I defer for a second year? And she said, no. And if she said, I've looked at your file. If I were you, I would come. <laughs> in, other, in other words, you weren't the first person we admitted. <laughs> you barely got in. <laughs> don't screw it up. And if you don't go, if I didn't go that year, I had to reapply. And there's no certainty you get back in. So I started mm-hmm. thinking about it. And then I called Mr. Allen and, and I said, what, what do you think I should do? He said, well, if you were my son, I would tell you to go to law school. I don't think you're going to play in the NHL. So it was like getting kicked in the groin as an athlete. When someone looks at you, your boss looks at you and says, you're never going to make it. 
Uh, but it was brutal honesty and, and great advice. So I went back to school, and Mr. Allen was great about it. That that first season, you mentioned you had come so far in hockey after starting late in your uh, in your childhood. What did you find the biggest challenge uh, with the pro game as a player? Well, everyone, I had made it, I had my four rules. So I talk about in the book, when I started playing hockey, I said, there's only one way you're going to make it and play college hockey. That was my aspiration was to play college hockey, not pro. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with my four rules, which is one, be the hardest worker, game and practice. Two, be a coach's dream. In other words, everything a coach wanted you to do, I did. So if you're supposed to stand right here, uh, and, and when we're killing a penalty and the coach shows the film, Brian Burke is standing right here, right where he's supposed to be. So be a coach's dream, be an indispensable teammate, be a guy that teammates value that you stick up for and they knew they could count on you. And then four was to play hard and tough. And you get to pro hockey and everyone followed those same four rules. They all worked hard and they were better than I was. So my four rules kind of fizzled out. They were great to get me that far. But at that point, all those NHL guys or AHL guys had those same rules. They, they, they did listen to the coach. They were coachable. They did things right. They were good teammates. They worked hard and they played hard and they were tough. And so now it comes down to skill level. At this point, these rules only buy you so much real estate. And then at some point, when everyone has followed the same rules, you've got to be as good as they are as a player. And I wasn't. From there, from Harvard Law, you went eventually into the agent business. Uh, you mentioned Gates Orlando with the Rochester Americans going through kind of a difficult stretch there, something you see a lot of veterans go through uh, in the American League. What was your advice to him, and, and how do you relate uh, both as an agent and a general manager to those guys where the, the NHL window's starting to close and uh, they're in that, uh, that gray zone of their career? Well, that's the hardest part in any athlete's career is knowing when it's time to go. And normally, the industry tells you when it's time to go. And you talk to players that go over and play in Europe, and they know it's time to go to Europe because nobody offers them a job in North America. And so they go to Europe. Or they get offered an American League job in Europe, and they go to Europe because they can make $250,000 versus seventy five or whatever. And so to me... I looked at Gates Orlando, who's a great minor leaguer, great guy too. Still works for, uh, was working for New Jersey up till last year, I think. Still, um, wonderful young man, but and a, and a gifted college player, like a star at Providence College, and a really good American League player. But his skating just wasn't good enough, I don't think, to play in the NHL. And that's the this one skill that keeps ninety percent of guys out of the NHL. You go to the AHL. And you see guys who can shoot the puck, and you see great hockey sense, and you see NHL quality toughness. The one skill that keeps most guys out of the NHL is, is their feet, and that's what happened with Gates. But I think it's a hard discussion at the end where you say, look, I got nothing. Not one team has, has offered me a thing. It might be time to look to do something else. That's a hard conversation to have. Back uh, in your earliest days with the Vancouver Canucks as the general manager, uh, you had a dual affiliation uh, in Fredericton with the uh, Quebec Nordiques. Um, what were the challenges of that affiliation? And then eventually, uh, what was it when you, what was it like to launch a new affiliation in Milwaukee of the International League back then? Well, we had, 
we were not happy with our affiliation with the Quebec Nordiques. It was a bad deal financially. We paid all of our players' salaries. We had half the team there, and we chipped in toward a certain cost, including a Christmas party and a year-end party, and we weren't happy with the deal. Pat Quinn was not happy. And I used to, to watch them play. You guys will get a, a laugh out of this. I could not leave Friday morning and get there in time for a game Friday night. I had to go Thursday night. So I would take the red eye Thursday night from Vancouver, land in Toronto, go to the airport hotel, and there's a Sheraton right in the hotel, and there's a Marriott right beside it. I'd sleep for four hours, catch a noon flight to Halifax, and then connect to Fredericton and get there just in time for the game. Like it was crazy because you got three plus uh, hour time change yeah. and all that distance. So I'd have to leave on Thursday night to watch the Fredericton Express play on Friday night. It was a terrible setup for us geographically. It was a poor deal for us financially. So we moved the next year to Milwaukee, and Phil Whitliff was the guy that ran the hockey team with the Milwaukee Admirals. Wonderful human being. Great player at Notre Dame. Uh, not not Saskatchewan, University of Notre Dame. And uh, he was our liaison. And we had a great experience in Milwaukee. We had good teams. We had good coaches. We had really tough teams. Ronnie Wilson started coaching there. Mike Murphy coached there. Kurt Fraser coached there. So it was a, we had really good personnel come through there, player-wise and, and coaching-wise. Pete DeBoer, who's coaching in the NHL, played for us in Milwaukee. What, what you mentioned uh, geographical affiliation, and that takes me into, into the 2000s when, with the Anaheim Ducks, and uh, you were one of the big proponents of a West Coast presence for the American League, uh, which was something at the time that was considered uh, just – such a you know unusual uh, idea, but uh, can you take us through that uh, evolution and how that unfolded? Uh, it was such a long, uh, you know, multi-year uh, process. Well, we talked about it when I was in Vancouver. I talk, Pat Quinn was a very progressive guy, and he was like, "We got to get some teams on the West Coast here." And I talked to a bunch of teams about it. Then when I went to, so that goes back to probably. 1990 goes way back then. We started talking to teams about it. And then when I went to Anaheim, I actually, uh, with Jillian Samueli, who's the, the owner's daughter, who's a talented, bright young lady, she and I toured a bunch of the venues on the West Coast. We're in the uh, ECHL or in one of the uh, lesser minor leagues. We went to Fresno. We went to Stockton. We went to Bakersfield, we went to San Diego, and we started evaluating what buildings would be suitable and what lease arrangements were made. And we never got much traction with the other NHL teams. Like I talked to the LA Kings, they were in Manchester, they were having great success for a couple of years. They were pretty happy. We had great success in Portland. Kevin Deneen was our coach. The three full years I was at Anaheim, we played in 14 playoff series. The big club played in eight. So we played in three my first year, four my second year, and one my third year. Portland Pirates played in six. Like, there was no other team close to us mm-hmm. in terms of being competitive at both levels. Uh, but long after I went, so I was in Calgary, and, and uh, these guys put together the, the West Coast expansion. So you added San Diego, Ontario, California, Bakersfield, Stockton, uh, and it's been a tremendous relocation in terms of players uh, being recalled and so on. Now, now, in the current labor dispute, we're going to see how that affects the American League because 
if there is an all-Canadian division, which I believe there will be, uh, the teams that have their farm team in the States, which would be Vancouver, Edmonton, and Calgary, I think are going to have to operate those teams out of the in, somewhere in Canada for a year. A couple more questions here for Brian Burke. Uh, his new book, Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey, is available now. Uh, the the AHL's in a, a pretty big stage of transition right now, Brian, uh, moving from Dave Andrews, the longtime president and CEO, to Scott Housen. Uh, in your experience with, with both of those guys, um, how do you see this transition going, and, and how good of a fit is Scott Housen to take the reins, especially at this difficult time? Well, I think Dave Andrews, I don't think his impact on the American Hockey League can be overstated. Hmm. I was with him through the merger of the IHL, then the Canadian or the California division came in. He's been a firefighter for much of his career, putting out fires here and there and ownership changes and all that. And he did a remarkable job, just a, a, a fantastic job as head of the American Hockey League. And those are big shoes. But I think Scott Housen can fill those shoes. I think Scott Housen is very bright very organized. He works hard. He knows how, how to forge alliances with people. He's very popular. I think he'll do a great job. So I think that was a great selection. I was not involved. Like I wasn't on the selection committee or involved in any way. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, I think Scott Housen, even though he's got huge shoes to fill, will fill them nicely. And last question. You mentioned the potential of a Canadian division. I mean, we get asked almost daily about what the uh, you know upcoming American Hockey League season might look like? Uh, do you have any thought or on how things might shake down moving forward, and and how difficult is this to figure out from uh, you know the executive standpoint as far as how we get a season together right now? Well, I don't know what it's going to look like. Like I, uh, to me, I just talked about this with the NHL. We have to play. Mm-hmm. Like we have to play the games. Like I worry not so much in Canada, but I worry in the U.S. with unemployment where it is, and not playing that people will find other things to do. So I think we have to play. If that means no fans or socially distanced fans, we have to play. We have to buy time until we get a vaccine. So in my mind, if I'm still running the Calgary Flames and we're playing in Stockton and we have to play to no fans, we're still going to play. Maybe an abbreviated season. Maybe it's socially distanced as time goes on. Maybe as a vaccine gets distributed and people get inoculated, uh, the crowds can increase. But I think it's critical that we play because otherwise people find other things to do. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. And we're dealing not just with the, with the COVID. We're dealing with the high unemployment rate. And the first thing that goes when you have tight, you know, when you sit down at the kitchen table with your wife and she just lost her job as a teacher, or you just lost your job working in the oil patch if you're in Calgary, and you sit down and say, okay, what, what can we eliminate? How can we cut our spending? Guess what the first thing you cross off is? Tickets to professional sporting events. That's mm-hmm. number one. Vacations is number two. You go camping instead of going to Disney World. But I think we have to play, and that's going to be some financial hardship for the NHL teams involved and for the independent AHL teams. I get it, but we need to play. And then hopefully the cavalry is on the horizon now with these vaccines. Hopefully we're back to normal next fall. Until then, if you need your hockey fix, some fantastic stories in Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey. Uh, Brian Burke, thank you so much for, for your time and your stories. Uh, we really appreciate uh, appreciate you taking the time for us. Thanks, guys. I love the AHL. I love your product, too. 
Finishing up this off-season update on Around the A on the Sports Podcasting Network. A massive, massive thank you to uh, the fantastic Brian Burke. Again, uh, if you uh, skipped through to the interview and didn't hear our tee-up to him, uh, I at least was expecting something a little bit different. Um, extremely happy with the way that turned out. And uh, boy, the guy's got some stories. And we should say that you know those stories are just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll find in the book, uh, Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey. Yeah, I, I, I highly recommend uh, Brian Burke's uh, new book. He, he really went uh, right from uh, the time he was uh, a kid. Uh, his family moved around quite a bit. Uh, originally, he's from Rhode Island, eventually ended up in uh, Edina, Minnesota, right outside the Twin Cities. And um, I found the interesting part about his uh, his background was he didn't start uh, really playing hockey in any sort of organized sense until he was 12 years old. And uh, he, that was a, a time when, uh, you know, the typical uh, Canadian story, uh, you know, you're three or four years old and uh, you have skates on. And, and here's a player back then in the at the time, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, had a lot of uh, ground to catch up on and uh, you know, within about a span of six, seven years, ended up uh, going to Providence College playing for Lou Lamorello. Uh, that was an experience and he, he goes into quite a bit of detail on the, on that <laughs> on that front. Uh, so you, you think about the, the, the work ethic that it took to, to make up that grounds in, in a span of six, seven years to get from where you're basically just starting off in hockey, you're playing division one at a top school like Providence College. And then, uh, you know, before long, you're 22 years old, you're playing the American Hockey League. Uh, at a time when um, there were far fewer teams, he, he came to the league, there were six clubs. Uh, so spots were uh, very much at a premium at the time. And um, he came in with the Philadelphia Flyers uh, in their system. Uh, and, uh, you know, the American Hockey League, uh, as he went into at that time, was a, a much different league, a lot more. As we heard. Yeah. Flat shots. <laughs> And, uh, you know, uh, the, the long bus rides and the old arenas and the, the, uh, the gruff coaches, uh, just uh, almost a different era altogether. Uh, so uh, he really uh, put the spotlight on that, uh, both in our talk with him here and also in the book. So, yeah, if you're a hockey fan right now, especially if you're, uh, you have a little bit of extra time on your hands, Highly recommend that book. Uh, it's a great read. Um, you know, it, it was a long time in coming, as he uh, as he discussed with us, uh, going back several years. He started keeping the diary, uh, but uh, certainly worth it. Uh, uh, you know, I, I found that book just a really enjoyable read. And it's called uh, Burke's Law: A Life in Hockey, and it's available at uh, most bookstores and online. Might be a nice Christmas gift idea as well for the hockey fan on your list. And uh, once again, we thank Brian Burke for his time here on Around the A. Uh, if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, you'd like us to try to get a hold of, because we have been having some success in nailing down guests during what is still a slow time, shoot us an email, aroundtheapod at gmail.com. Uh, get at us on social media at aroundtheapod, and uh, we'll see what we can come up with as far as guests go. Uh, we can tell you next week another pretty big guest uh, in the uh, the world of hockey management uh, and executives goes Howard Dolgan, the owner of the Syracuse Crunch, who we have referenced on this show numerous times before, uh, has reached out to us and wants to come on. So we're going to talk to him next week. Yeah, you notice the theme here, uh, very um, outspoken, very honest uh, people. Brian Burke, Howard Dolgan, uh, kind of cut from the same cloth. Uh, guys that's uh, wear their heart in their sleeve, uh, speak, uh, speak their mind, 
not afraid to ruffle some feathers. Howard uh, Dolgan has uh, been one of the real um, uh, longtime faces in this league, a guy that's uh, brought hockey back to Syracuse in 1994, uh, built that franchise up from the ground and is uh, now part of one of the best affiliations in, in all of hockey with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, he's a guy that will speak his mind time and time again. And I, I think the interesting thing with him, especially throughout the pandemic here for going on nine months, uh, he's really been aggressive in, in uh, putting the message out to uh, his fan base and really to fans all around the league. Uh, he's, he's held a number of uh, press conferences, Zoom conferences, uh, just trying to uh, put his team out in the in the spotlight and uh, keep uh, keep fans interested in hockey. Fans are, are, are kind of thirsting for, for any sort of information right now, as we all are. Uh, and uh, there hasn't been a ton, but uh, he's, if he's had information, he's put it out there. So, uh, yeah, when he contacted us and said he'd like to come on the show, yeah, I didn't have to think very long about that one. Uh, uh, yeah, so I think he'll be a great guest, just like Brian Burke was. Uh, really give us insight uh, on both uh, the business as a whole and, and more specifically what you know, what's happening right now as we look toward that possible February 5th start date for the American Hockey League. Yeah, lots to figure out to, until then, and maybe we'll get some tidbits from Howard Dolgan about how the process is actually going since uh, nobody really seems to have much of an idea of exactly what's going on. Uh, we'll do our best to clear that up for you next week and then uh, continue to move on with uh, whoever else we can dig up during this uh, extended offseason as we uh, approach the holidays and then eventually uh, in the new year, hopefully get back on the ice. Uh, we'll wrap it up for now. Again, thanks to Brian Burke for his time and to everyone who tuned in and listened. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you are listening and head over on the social medias at Around the A Pod for all the latest. You can find the old episodes there as well. This has been an Around the A off-season update on the Sports Podcasting Network. Stay up to date on the latest news and notes from the American Hockey League by subscribing to Around the A wherever you get your podcasts. And find us on social media at Around the A Pod.